out of the trench, there was about four or five Germans got out and they didn't get out to run, they got out to fight. And one of them was coming towards us with a uh, fixed bayonet. He couldn't have had any ammunition or else he'd have shot us. As I say, I was a crack shot. I shot him in the shoulder. I couldn't kill him. That Cornishman's mother was in my brain. I thought, I can't kill him. He's somebody's son. He's probably got brothers and sisters. Maybe he's got a family to bring up. I can't kill him. I never, never, I should never forget it. Hello, everyone. That was, once again, the voice of Harry Patch, the last surviving British soldier of the First World War, who passed away aged 111 in 2009. In spite of the reverence with which he was treated by the British establishment, with the likes of Tony Blair attempting to co-opt him for photo opportunities, Harry could actually have been court-martialed during the war had his unwillingness to shoot to kill been discovered. Throughout his life, he saw the war as a futile slaughter, and refused to talk about it until the late 90s. Like many of the longest surviving veterans, Harry missed the first two years of the war, being too young to be conscripted until October of 1916. If the premise I'm examining in today's episode is correct, the war could have been long over by then, but for the actions of British imperialists who sought to prolong the agony so Germany would be truly smashed. Prolonging the agony, how the Anglo-American establishment deliberately extended World War I by three and a half years, is the title of Jerry Doherty and Jim McGregor's follow-up book to Hidden History. Just as a recap, in Hidden History, which I examined in the last episode, Doherty and McGregor lay out their case that certain British imperialists, along with imperialists in Russia and France, essentially engineered the First World War to come about. In examining this already controversial claim, I came away feeling it certainly had merit. Whilst not wishing to paint the Kaiser as any kind of saint, the Germans had their own brutally repressive colonies in southwest Africa, British and French belligerence in Morocco seems to be often understated. An excellent case can be made for Russia being the primary instigator of the war, and a lot of bizarre British actions start to make sense if you consider the aim was to bring about rather than prevent it. Even prior to any examination, I would have been surprised if there was not truth in the claim. I lived through the Iraq War and saw the obvious propaganda firsthand. We all know there are plenty of people in elite foreign policy circles who never see a war they don't love, and so I very much doubt the British Foreign Office was any different in the early 20th century. This was just over a decade since the blatantly aggressive war in South Africa, and the Empire was known to like a war or two now and then. When I first read Hidden History some years ago, it made sense to me on the basis that I assumed British imperialists had bought into their own propaganda. They anticipated a short war, the war that would have been over by Christmas. A decisive victory would put Germany back in her place and peace would return to Europe. I assumed things just got out of control, leading to a life-or-death struggle with Germany that was never intended to be. Jerry Doherty and Jim McGregor's contention is the complete opposite of this, that British imperialists took action to drag the war out for a full three and a half years longer than necessary. This claim seems vastly more controversial than their previous one, 
about Britain instigating the war. And yet, if you accept their initial premise, that the war was about smashing Britain's rising imperial competitor, it makes a certain kind of sense. A short war wouldn't do this. Only a long one would result in the required level of devastation. Perhaps we see examples of this in modern times. The US government's failure to prevent Osama bin Laden's 2001 escape from Afghanistan to Pakistan was so egregious, a strong case can be made that he was deliberately let go in order to prolong the war on terror. But by comparison, this is a cat playing with a mouse. Al-Qaeda couldn't have mounted a successful attack inside the United States without the CIA effectively protecting them. It's not an existential struggle the likes of which England faced with Germany. Obviously there are scores of objections to Doherty and McGregor's premise that I can instantly make in my own mind. In fact, I would have a hard job understanding anyone hearing this hypothesis for the first time and not considering it crazy. Indeed, in a moment I'll show you that Jerry Doherty himself initially considered it so. To evaluate their claims, however, we must suspend judgment and look at the evidence they present. They start by quoting the war poet Captain Siegfried Sassoon from a famous letter he wrote entitled Finish with the War, a Soldier's Declaration, for which he was nearly court-martialed. The passage reads, I am making this statement as an act of willful defiance of the military authority because I believe that the war is being deliberately prolonged by those who have the power to end it. I am a soldier, convinced that I am acting on behalf of soldiers. I believe that the war upon which I entered as a war of defence and liberation has now become a war of aggression and conquest. I have seen and endured the suffering of the troops, and I can no longer be party to prolonging these sufferings for ends which I believe to be evil and unjust. In this context, I can understand the claim of deliberate prolonging. Wars, when started, create all sorts of incentives for their prolongation, from those profiting from the sales of armaments, to those who spot an opportunity to reshape the world into a preferred image. Doherty and McGregor are talking of something grander again, however, a deliberate plan to prolong the war from its outset. The first piece of evidence they present is in a chapter titled The Scandal of Briey. Briey is a region of France situated on the north-eastern border with Germany. It was the centre of both iron ore and coal production for the French army. Four days after French mobilisation, the Germans walked in and took it, unopposed, without firing a single shot. No effort had been made by the French army to sabotage any of the works there. According to Robert A. Doty, in his book Pyrrhic Victory, French Strategy and Operations in the Great War, the loss of Briey deprived France of 83% of its production of iron ore, 62% of its cast iron, and 60% of its steel. As a consequence, thousands of lives were lost when French soldiers had to fight without adequate weapons and supplies. Doherty and McGregor point out the obvious, that France's loss was Germany's gain. Drawing on German sources from the time, they contend Germany would have been unable to wage war beyond six months without this acquisition. Why on earth would this be? We can listen to Robert Doty attempt to account for French inaction. The French are absolutely confident that the Germans are coming to France first. That intelligence is corroborated by the, uh, uh, by the Russians. And uh, they will move, he will move Fifth Army 
out here in case they come as far as Givet. In other words, through the uh, uh, Shimei, uh, Shimei Gap. Now, what kind of war are they thinking about? Answer that can be found right here in this little place called Brie, the Brie Basin. That contains almost all the iron ore that France has in France. Uh, it, they will give up Brie in the first uh, moments of the battle, first moments of the uh, campaign. They will lose their capability to build new weapons, uh, do the sort, wage the sort of war uh, that uh, uh, we are going to see and that they really should have expected to see. But they're really thinking short war, and there's the evidence for it right there. It's also up further up here. They just abandon Lille, make very little effort to defend Lille. Lille is where all their coal is. So in the first battles, they're giving up their iron ore and they're giving up their, uh, up their coal. Uh, Joff later says that he uh, uh, never ruled out the possibility of a long war uh, and that he never said it would be a short war. He gave up, however, the Brie Basin and he gave up the Lille Basin with virtually no effort to defend it at, uh, uh, at all. A post-war parliamentary commission concluded that Marshal Joseph Joffrey, commander-in-chief of the French forces on the Western Front, had failed to comprehend the relationship between industrial production and military operations, and was unwilling to think of anything but a short war. In a short war, the defence of Paris took precedence over industrial centres. Doherty and McGregor say that even if this was true, it would not account for the failure to sabotage the facilities or to bomb or shell them when the war was underway. In this claim, it seems they have allies in France at that time. One 1916 bombing campaign, proposed by future French Prime Minister Pierre-Étienne Flandin, was halted after a single raid. This caused Flandin to comment to a post-war inquiry that Germany had been exploiting the natural resources for 27 months without being disturbed, and that there was a method of shortening the war and this method was neglected for more than two years. In 1919, the socialist member of the French Assembly, Edouard Barth, declared that, either owing to international solidarity of heavy industry, or in order to safeguard private interests, orders were given to our military commanders not to bombard the factories of the basin of Brie exploited by the enemy during the war. I declare that our aircraft received instructions to respect the blast furnaces which were smelting the enemy's steel. Realising that the German army had not attempted to bomb French coal mines in the Pass de Calais, the French press began to speculate there existed an agreement not to attack industrial targets, essential for a long war. The accusation that either the international armaments industry or influential and powerful private interests had ordered the French military high command not to destroy BA was denied in the French assembly. It was acknowledged, however, that the Air Force had been ordered to respect the blast furnaces in which the enemy steel was being made, and that a general who had wished to bombard them was reprimanded. I've acquired several books on the prosecution of the First World War, and I've searched through them for various terms related to this issue. Several do mention the loss of Brie in the same context Robert Doty does, that its loss was a near-inexplicable French blunder brought about by short-sightedness. I haven't found anything addressing why the French did not attempt to destroy the works after the loss. It is therefore hard to contrast Doherty McGregor's position with anything. 
It certainly is weird to read about discussions in post-war France regarding protection of industry taking precedence and the war being deliberately prolonged. Whilst I certainly can't connect any of this up to a larger British imperial plot, it does seem to me Doherty and McGregor are not off to a bad start. Let's move to look at the second piece of evidence they present, which they call the myth of the Great Blockade. There is practically unanimous agreement amongst historians that the British naval blockade of Germany was a key factor in the outcome of the war. Germany's merchant fleet immediately was taken out of action, impounded in ports around the world. By 1915, German exports and imports had fallen by over half their pre-war levels. This blockade is considered to have caused the starvation of between half and three quarters of a million Germans. If there's any controversy, it's around its continuation for eight months after the war had ended, costing up to another 100,000 lives. How on earth can Doherty and McGregor refer to it as a myth, then? This is surely the most controversial claim they've made so far. On that point, Jerry Doherty might agree. It seems that this was the issue he initially started arguing with Jim McGregor over, thinking McGregor was crazy for proposing it. That is before he was won over by his case. Jim and I had met under uh, interesting circumstances in terms of, you know, we lived in the same area but really didn't know one another. And when we had a discussion, I was certain that he was wrong. And we got into a, a, a let's call it a solid argument. So I, uh, I was very um, determined to disprove the nonsense, um, which I, in, in my um, arrogance, believed that he was talking. And to my shock, I was wrong. And I, I couldn't quite understand how... How could I be wrong? I, wait a minute, this, this, this isn't working for me anymore. We were actually discussing the abuse of, um, in, in the First World War, when the war uh, first started, uh, the so-called blockade. And, and Jim's viewpoint was, well, actually, the blockade really hardly happened at all. It was a piece of nonsense, and it was widely abused by the government and with the government in cahoots. And I'm going, you're saying we're feeding the enemy? He said, yeah, exactly. And oh no, that's so much rubbish, Jim. And he was right, not me. And I think once you punch a hole in, in your own sort of, I'm going to call it conceit for myself, but once you punch a hole in that, and, and you say, well, wait a minute, I'm totally wrong here. This is not what the evidence is. The evidence from, um, written sources from, from vice admirals, from parliamentary debates in, in 1917, 18, 19. It takes a long time, and I had the time, and I was researching. And I began to unpick, and you used that analogy, and it's a lovely one, I began to unpick this, this whole uh, concoction, and thread by thread, it began to fall apart. In labelling the blockade a myth, Doherty and McGregor are specifically referring to the period from 1914 to 16. Their argument breaks down into two sections. The first regards the placement of the blockade. Within the British Navy, there was a split over how a blockade of Germany should be carried out. The recently retired First Sea Lord, Admiral John Jackie Fisher, had advocated for a close blockade around the German coast. 
This would have halted German imports by sea from Scandinavian countries, as well as trapping the German fleet in port. First Lord of the Admiralty, Winston Churchill, along with others in the Navy, disagreed. A close blockade was what the German Navy had prepared to fight, using mines, torpedoes and submarines. Close blockade advocates contended that the water was too shallow for submarines to operate effectively and that they were no match for British destroyers. Such a blockade would have no doubt been more effective if it had been successful. Doherty and McGregor see the decision not to implement one and instead opt for a blockade stretching hundreds of miles from Scotland to Greenland as being motivated by a desire to allow Germany to receive supplies, thus prolonging the war. They reference and criticise Professor Hugh Strachan's book, The First World War, Volume 1, Two Arms. Strachan contends that the claim submarines could not operate in shallow water is spurious, based on mistaken observations by the previous sea lord, Sir Arthur Wilson. He also mentions coastal batteries and the concern they would have brought about a steady erosion of British capital ships. Strachan further contends that recoaling would have proven a major obstacle for a close blockade. This was a problem discussed at the time, with Sir Arthur Wilson advocating the archipelago of Hagerland, situated off the German coast, be captured and used as a coaling station. Doherty and McGregor point out that these concerns were voiced several years prior to the war, however, and that by its outbreak, much of the navy had been refitted with oil-fired engines, making the problem of coaling obsolete. They further claim that Hugh Strachan makes a gross error in stating that the British Navy only had 42 destroyers at the outbreak of the war. This is less than half the German number. They present the actual number as being 221. I thought this was a strange mistake for an eminent historian to make, so I tracked it down, and it appears Strachan has only counted the destroyers anchored at Scarpa Flow. Doherty and McGregor are indeed correct with their number. Whilst I think they make many good points here, and may well indeed be right, I don't find their case overwhelmingly conclusive. There may well have been valid tactical reasons why a distant blockade was preferred. I certainly can't dismiss that possibility. I'll now move on to the second section. They begin by quoting Winston Churchill from November of 1914, saying, The punishment we inflict is very often not seen, and even when seen, cannot be measured. The economic stringency resulting from a naval blockade requires time to reach its full effectiveness. Now you are only looking at it in the third month, but wait a bit, examine it at the sixth month, and the ninth month, and the twelfth month, and you will begin to see the results, results which will be gradually achieved and silently achieved, but which will spell the doom of Germany as surely as the approaching winter strikes the leaves from the trees. Whatever effect the blockade ultimately had on the outcome of the war, it of course did not succeed in bringing it to a swift conclusion the way people believed and Churchill implied it might. Doherty and McGregor contend this was because it was deliberately porous on the level of bureaucracy. They describe this as a conflict between the Admiralty, who wanted to institute an effective blockade, and the Foreign Office, who did not. In 1908, discussions between the major maritime nations took place in London, resulting in the Declaration of London on the Laws of Naval Warfare. It recommended the establishment of an international prize court, laid out guidelines on contraband, and issued directives on how neutral countries should be allowed to trade with combatant nations. Items of cargo were divided up into three categories. Absolute contraband, 
which meant weapons or items obviously related to weaponry, conditional contraband, which included items which could be used in war, but also had other purposes, such as clothing, fuel, and lubricants. And finally, items which weren't contraband, which included cotton, wool, metallic ores, nitrates and phosphates, for fertiliser, and rubber. The Admiralty were fiercely opposed. It was labelled a sea law made in Germany, and many signed a written objection which was circulated to all members of the House of Commons. Although approved by the Commons, the declaration was ultimately thrown out by the House of Lords. When war broke out, the Foreign Office moved to prevent a ban on British ships supplying neutral ports with American cotton. The relevance of this is that cotton is an essential component in munitions, and Germany was getting its supply from neutral Scandinavian countries. Doherty and McGregor show importation figures demonstrating a dramatic rise in the levels of cotton imported into these countries during the war. The fall in Germany's importation figures does not mean she was not being supplied. The Foreign Office justification was that without this trade, cotton farmers in the American South would be ruined, alienating the United States. Furthermore, British ships could switch to flying the American flag to reap the profits of the trade. It was therefore better to let Germany have her cotton. Doherty and McGregor even contend that cotton was re-exported out of Britain to neutral Scandinavian countries to then go on to Germany. The British Navy was initially prohibited from preventing neutral ships from delivering cotton, oil or rubber to German ports. In spite of it not being ratified, the Foreign Office decided the Navy would abide by the Declaration of London so far as may be practical. This favoured the neutral's right to trade against the belligerent's right to blockade. Doherty and McGregor quote the American ambassador to Britain, Walter Hines Page, as saying Britain would go to any length to keep our friendship and goodwill, and she has not confiscated a single one of our cargoes, even unconditional contraband. She has stopped some of them and bought them herself, but confiscated not one. They cite the example of the American oil tanker, the SS Lama, owned by John D. Rockefeller's Standard Oil. The Lama was intercepted by the British Navy, but then ordered release so she could proceed on to Germany. They firmly reject the Foreign Office's justification, seeing it as totally unrealistic that the United States or other neutral countries would join Germany's cause if trade were interfered with. They point out that a strict blockade would have brought the war to a quick finish. Therefore, the effect on trade would only have been temporary, and that the Americans would never have risked breaking the blockade at the cost of a consequent ban from the huge British, French and Russian markets. Their case draws heavily from the writing of British Rear Admiral Montague Consett, who authored a book in 1923 titled The Triumph of Unarmed Forces, 1914-18. They quote him as saying that It is certain Germany was neither prepared nor equipped for a struggle of four years' duration, and It was well known to Britain's allies and to the Americans in Scandinavia that Britain was actually competing with neutrals in supplying the enemy. Had the supplies been withheld, it would have sounded Germany's death knell at an early date. Doherty and McGregor quote a letter published in the Times newspaper in 1915 saying that The mothers of French soldiers think it is inconceivable that you should continue supplying the enemy with the means of killing the sons of your allies. French people are continually asking, what is the English fleet doing to allow cotton to go into Germany? 
The following day, the Times editorial described the inadequacy of the steps so far taken by the British government to prevent these vitally important products from reaching an enemy destination. They also quote consulting chemist of the Crown, Bertram Blunt, saying that There can be no doubt that if cotton had been made absolute contraband from the start, the Russians would not now be retreating. If the proper steps had been taken at the beginning of the war to prevent Germany from obtaining supplies of cotton, the British and French troops would now be operating on German soil. Finally, they describe how Britain continued to supply coal to Sweden during the war, which was either transported onto Germany or used to transport Swedish iron ore there. It was the same case of nickel, essential in the production of guns. They describe a sea change taking place in 1916, after the quick victory had not arrived and the British public and media came to believe the blockade was a farce. They quote the Daily Mail describing it as a sham blockade, whilst the Morning Post called it a make-believe blockade. The issue was raised in Parliament, with Liberal politician Sir Henry Dazio stating, For the first 18 months of the war, the Admiralty were in a state of despair with regard to the actions of the Foreign Office. They were bringing in, day after day, ships which were admittedly carrying cargo to the benefit of the enemy. What happened? A telegram was sent to London, to the Foreign Office, and in reply, often in the course of a few hours, a telegram came informing them that they ought to let the ships go through, which tended to make our sailors absolutely depressed and in despair. The whole thing was treated as a farce, though ship after ship, to the knowledge of the officers, carried goods to Germany. In February of 1916, the former First Sea Lord, Admiral Charles Beresford, declared in the House of Lords that had a blockade been put in place, rather than the ambiguous Treaty of London, the war would now have been over. At the end of the war, some military men and politicians attempted to hold the government to account. Brigadier General Henry Pagecroft called for the Foreign Secretary Sir Edward Grey and Prime Minister Herbert Asquith to be impeached. He accused them of lying and ducking responsibility, stating that We fed Germans because no minister was responsible. No minister was responsible during this time, and yet we find millions of tons of produce and raw materials left this country, or for shells to blow our men to bits in the trenches, cotton to provide explosives for these shells, and food to feed the Germans who fired those shells. The publication of Rear Admiral Contet's book in 1923 provoked a debate in the House of Lords. Sir Edward Grey attended and defended his actions. He stated that had a blockade been fully implemented in the early stages of the war, Britain would have had such trouble with the United States that it would have been futile to the future of the Allies. Doherty and McGregor, needless to say, completely reject this argument. I'll just summarise a couple of their additional points. The Commission for Relief in Belgium, an organisation headed up by the future United States President Herbert Hoover, acted to take pressure off Germany by feeding the occupied Belgian people. It also allowed for food to be siphoned off to the German army. It seems to me that the former of these points is just self-evidently true. In addition to allowing Germany to be supplied with oil from America, Doherty and McGregor assert that the British government did nothing to pressure British oil companies to stop supplying Germany from their fields in Romania. They also charge that Britain encouraged Romania to enter the war, with promises of Hungarian territory, fully knowing that they would be easily crushed, 
guaranteeing continued German access to oil. They quote David Lloyd George describing the decision as a blunder of the most inexplicable character, further saying that our military advisers must have known that if the Germans chose to withdraw from the attack on Verdun and send a few of their reserve divisions into Romania, the Romanian forces would be quite unequal in the face of such an attack. I'll start to wrap it up here. I've only covered the sections of the book which specifically deal with how the war was deliberately prolonged. There are substantial further sections on the United States and Russia, which I'll look at another time. In summary, I think Doherty and McGregor present a fascinating and compelling case. It's amazing to see that so many people at the time of the war were pointing out the different ways it was being prolonged. Perhaps without such a comprehensive view, or the perspective that prolongation was the aim. In the previous episode, on the causes of the war, I found it quite easy to contrast Doherty and McGregor's positions with those of other historians. All the major incidents and cast of characters are consistent across all the books I read. It's simply the interpretation of their significance that differs. That's not the case here. I acquired several books on the war and searched them for the events and people Doherty and McGregor are writing about. These searches returned almost nothing, so I have nothing to contrast their claims with. I'm not suggesting they are universally unaddressed, perhaps if I just looked at a few more books, but from what I've seen, the accusation that Britain and France fought the war with one hand tied behind their back seems to have been lost to history. I could of course make an argument against that case. Are we really seeing a coordinated plan to prolong the war, or just the sum of lots of individual acts of profiteering. If it is the former, wouldn't that require men in the British Foreign Ministry to be evil super-geniuses, capable of pulling off long-term plans with so many moving parts they can't possibly control? The same men who had struggled to defeat a bunch of farmers in South Africa just 15 years earlier? And what if Germany had broken through the French lines? My understanding is that this was a real possibility at certain points. Wouldn't they have then turned their full attention to smashing Russia and becoming the overwhelmingly dominant power on the continent? Couldn't this all have gone badly wrong? Furthermore, if the blockade was so porous, why is it said so many hundreds of thousands of Germans died of starvation during the war? With those questions being posed, I will conclude. Next time, I'm going back across the Atlantic with an ultimate eye on the American entry into the war. But before I get there, I'll examine the rebranding of imperialism that went on of the election of the 28th President of the United States, Woodrow Wilson. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to support the show and the production of this content, a subscription option that allows access to a forum and Zoom groups is available in the info box.